We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Uh, Great president, except for his foreign policy, Lyndon Baines Johnson. One of the main reasons given for their support by backers of Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton is her foreign policy experience. After all, she was Secretary of State for quite a long time. Of course, the person she is challenging for the nomination, Senator Bernie Sanders, is seen by most Americans, in the words of our guest today, quote, as anything but a realist, more like a utopian idealist. But they're wrong. Sanders is paradoxically the only foreign policy realist in the presidential field. Now, this may fly in the face of widely held conventional wisdom, but our guest today is in a position to understand such things. He's Robert English, Deputy Director of the School of International Relations at the University uh, of uh, Southern California. He specializes in Russia and the former Soviet Union and formerly worked for the Defense Department. Thanks very much for being with us, Rob English. I'm happy to be here. Well, today we're going to discuss his new article in The Nation magazine titled Bernie Sanders, the Foreign Policy Realist of 2016. And as you'll see, these are not just his opinions. Some of America's most respected and venerable foreign policy and defense advisors agree. Bernie Sanders is the foreign policy realist of 2016. Now, again, thanks for being with us. We should probably start with a definition the word realism. In one sense, it could mean what is realistic in terms of what the American public and Congress might go along with. Of course, the results of that definition of realism have yielded in recent decades a great many deaths and losses of limbs and questionable benefits for the United States. In your article, what do you mean by the term foreign policy realism, Rob English? Well, let me say first, respond to what you just noted, that uh, our most esteemed realist foreign policy thinkers, international relations analysts, usually haven't had much regard for what Congress or public opinion thinks, because so often they have led us astray into non-realistic, to put it mildly, and disastrous, to put it bluntly, policies. Uh, Often the passions of our domestic political system and wild swings are the enemy of a consistent realist policy. So Mm. that's what they don't like, and um, we're often discouraged by. What it does mean, I suppose you could look at it in the following way. The first understanding is the colloquial one that you've sort of referenced already, just what it means, realistic. It means look at the world as it actually is, 
um, not as you want it to be. Avoid utopian projects, illusions, delusions of yourself, what you can accomplish or what can be expected, and see the world as it is. And also that means as others see you. Um, and don't be wrapped up in yourself. Mm-hmm. That's realistic, right? That's yep. the real world. The more scholarly or analytical meaning, probably I would point to two facets of realism, political realism as it was uh, described by the late and great uh, Hans Morgenthau. Mm, we will quote him, yes. Um, often regarded as the father of classical realist foreign policy thinking. The, um, I suppose for a progressive thinker, the, uh, the negative or dark side of realism, mm. of political realism, international affairs, is that it's very pessimistic. It focuses on power, that states must guard their power, usually seek to increase their power because the world is a dangerous place, because other states can't be trusted, because there's no overarching authority to enforce agreements or rescue you in a crisis. So it's a self-help world, and that means um, often, sadly, arms races, focus on military expenditures, building up your power. Not to be aggressive, necessarily, but to guard against those who might do you harm. That is the pessimistic or dark side of political realism. But for a progressive, the positive side, and this is what is so often ignored in our discourse, is that political realists have always been extremely leery of foreign interventions, of grand projects to remake a country or transform a region, because they recognize the limitations of any state's American power, um, they have seen again and again in the past such grand projects fail yeah. throughout history. Um, and they also are deeply conscious, and again, here a progressive can stand up and cheer, that our strength, that power that part one of realism emphasizes, is not just military might, it's right. also economic, and it's also social and political. Right? A country that builds up a huge army but is divided at home, has political strife, social unrest, maybe causing economic problems, or the reverse, economic inequalities or disparities that weaken the political system and social unity, all undermine that power you want to project. So in other words, one of the basic lessons of political realism is take care of your own house first. Hmm. Going along with what you're saying, in terms of realism, it has to be what the rest of the world sees as real as well. It can't be just what we project on them, because Lord knows we have projected uh, visions uh, that are born of, uh, you know, domestic political concerns, you know, looking tough, riding high in the saddle, all that kind of stuff. But it doesn't realistically help the United States uh, have actual real power. Is that a correct analysis of what you're saying? I think it is, and I think that drawing on the Vietnam War, sure. other previous crises in the 20th and the 19th century, that's exactly what realists were saying, have always said, as you just expressed yourself. Um, you Which cannot, or you really ought not try yeah. to impose your own vision, your own priorities on a world where others see things differently, uh, radically differently. Um, and, you know, along with that, you ought not, you must guard against becoming so wrapped up in your own vision 
or ambitions mm. for the world that you lose sight of the fact that the world isn't that way, that others don't see it your way. And even a good idea will then come to grief because you simply cannot impose it. And right. it's not only a matter of more power, right? It's a matter of reality simply won't permit, no matter how enthusiastic your domestic audience, no matter how much a mm. presidential candidate has promised. Mm -hmm. um, what was it they said in the, in the Bush years, right? We're not... We're, we're going to make our own reality. We're not limited, like you people, reality-based journalists and analysts. We, we think we're so strong that we can remake reality. Well, that really came to grief. Mm. And, uh, again, Morgenthau and realists all the way back to the ancient Greek Thucydides yeah. have warned that it was doomed. Well, absolutely. And, you know, you talk about grief. You know, there's this image of projecting American power were number one. And the grief, let's face it, is very real for the families of people whose sons and daughters' lives and limbs have been cut off short and cannot be made whole again. That is very real. And it's, it's just, uh, and to project something, you know, this, this fantasy that, that causes so much pain and doesn't get us, uh, 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 you know, our, our strength. I mean, as you certainly mentioned, Vietnam, it's been amazing to me. I was, you know, very active during the war against the war, and we have so steadfastly refused to learn the obvious lessons of Vietnam. It's just incredibly frustrating to me. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is uh, Robert English, Deputy Director of the School of International Relations at the University of Southern California. And we're talking about his new article, Bernie Sanders, the Foreign Policy Realist of 2016. And, uh, you know, certainly uh, America has involved itself in uh, use of force a great many times since we became the obvious superpower of the world at the end of the Second World War. Uh, but going along with the, the conventional wisdom, isn't anything in opposition to the belief that we, the United States, have to be the enforcer, that who else is going to do it? Um, so anything that's in opposition to that belief can't that be said to be unrealistic and perhaps be dismissed as idealistic? And I think that's one of the things people are saying about Bernie Sanders. I, I agree. You're absolutely right. And the tragedy is for Sanders, Clinton, or whoever is elected our next president, they will inherit the office and they will inherit a world and an American foreign policy in such awful condition oh, yeah. that it's hard to imagine, even if everything broke perfectly in our favor, and even if that new president made no mistakes, that they could even repair the damage of the last 15 or so years, 20 years even, much less move forward. Right? And, and this is a, oh, one of the, the tragedies of the Obama presidency. And I'll leave aside the plenty of mistakes that Obama or Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State and others committed, um, we have to admit that even if we in America think we've now elected Obama, we're through with the Bush years of preemptive war and unilateral action, well, what mm. the mess that Obama inherited right, has kept him tied down yeah. and presented such awful choices. They haven't always made the correct ones. No. 
But we're still dealing with the legacy of 2003. And so True. we'd like to think, when we elect a new president, the whole spectacle of our politics, the promises, um, when we have a new commander-in-chief, a new administration, is now we can right the ship, go forward. Yeah. But the ship is leaking, it, 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 we're bailing and barely staying afloat, and there's so much to, re, to repair that uh, you know, these mistakes live on for decades. And I'm talking, of course, about the Middle East. Yeah. And I'm not just speaking about failed or collapsing states and strife that we've helped fuel, um, but I'm talking about public opinion, right, which, hmm. of the United States, I mean, which is very low, um, does not distinguish between a bad Bush administration and a good Obama administration. Yeah, In fact, sure. with drone strikes here oh, and yeah. reckless intervention there, sees absolute continuity. Um, and, and that means, in their eyes, um, yeah. you know, one administration after the other, Republican, Democrat, Republican, do the same aggressive and destructive thing. Yeah, it has certainly been the case. And I know that uh, people in Central America were really hoping uh, in 2009, when, when uh, Obama became president, that we'd have a different policy toward them. And then uh, th- there was an amazing shock when Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and we'll talk more about this on another show, uh, got directly involved in the destruction of democracy in Honduras. And it was the same old, same old. And what has that gotten us? And you talked about uh, uh, post-war realism, the, the uh, Hans Morgenthau's politics among nations. That, you mentioned that in the article. And uh, Morgenthau recognized the need for states to guard their security with a readiness for self-defense. That's, you know, political, foreign policy, and defense realism. As you write, Morgenthau also cautioned against what he called the squandering of that power. Talk about that, please, and perhaps with, with some examples that, that Morgenthau might have been thinking of. Morgenthau was thinking about Vietnam. Mm. That was the immediate crisis in American foreign policy. And so he's writing in the early, mid, late 1960s as our involvement grows and as we you know, slide into this quagmire, this eventual catastrophic defeat. And he not only very practically, very realistically, saw that it was militarily doomed. He not only understood far earlier than others that this wasn't a simple case of communist aggression that must be resisted to save democratic South Vietnam, but it was a civil war, and it involved elements of nationalism, and that if we intervened, we would be seen as aggressors, that uh, a united Vietnamese rejection of this huge American intervention and destruction in their country. He understood all of that. Yeah, it was, yeah. um, but he also, this is to your question, looked at American society, looked at the increasing damage, right? anti-war movements, protests, tearing apart generations, resisting the draft, inflaming our politics, and just um, a cancer on our society that would weaken that national unity and that sort of social and cultural strength that any country wants to have, and that a superpower wants to project to the world. And we, I guess that's another way of saying that uh, with the atrocities, with the continued levels of violence and killing and bombing, 
um, we would lose our moral authority. Yes. We would find ourselves less able to lead and inspire others in the world. Oh. And I think we talk about today, we, call, we talk about soft power, right? Mm-hmm. The hard power, and some people understood that, certainly Morgenthau did, but a lot of other people didn't understand that it has to be coupled with soft power, the power to inspire and lead by example. And we were tarnishing that so severely that we were, you could put it this way, we were uh, destroying one half of that you know, two-sided power equation. Right. It seems like a lot of people uh, don't really understand that, that uh, we, we really do need that soft power. Uh, and, and it is genuine power. The only power is not militarism. And that's, you know, one thing that Bernie Sanders has talked quite a bit about. You know, his, his obvious strength is uh, economics, but his less obvious strength, as we're talking about here, is foreign policy realism. Now, as, as you mentioned, you know, if he became president, which, as people who listen to the show know, I very much look forward to, uh, I'm trying to help as much as I can. Um, boy, there'd be some difficult situations. I, you know, with, as you mentioned, we're paying the price for 2003. ISIS didn't come out of nowhere. ISIS came out of our horrible, incredibly misguided, dishonest adventure in, in Iraq. And, you know, I, I just wonder what your sense of how Bernie Sanders' approach could could deal with these issues. I mean, it's not easy. We have the Saudis uh, on, on one side stirring up a lot of trouble, and they're allegedly our good friends. Uh, we have uh, I- Iran on the other side, which is working more closely with Russia. I, I think maybe we can stop there. And I, I believe Bernie has talked about that division uh, a little bit that might be more realistic, given the horrible situation that we face. I'm sorry, did you ask in particular about Russia? I'm not sure. Well, yeah, about, about Bernie Sanders' uh, approach with regard to, I mean, there's the, uh, the division right now in terms of not exactly superpowers, but there's Saudi Arabia on one side, which is very much involved in Yemen, and on another side, we have uh, uh, Iran, which is, seems to be working more closely with, with Russia. And I'm wondering, I guess my question is... Uh, uh, that uh, perhaps Bernie Sanders' understanding of of Russia's role in all this may be more realistic in terms of what we're talking about in realism. Okay, yes. Let's start with Syria, the U.S. and Russia there, and what a new president, a new president Sanders, might be able to do. Here, I think, again, a realist has to say, looking at Syria, that we made a number of mistakes, one of which was to insist from very early on that Assad, the Syrian leader, must go. That right. He was the problem, right. and that any solution had to start with his ouster. Right. And so we supported various forces, invested in very dubious enterprises, supplies of arms and training, uh, trying to bolster a sort of mythical, united moderate Syrian opposition um, to push him out, while other countries, and that included Russia, going back two or more years, three years, were saying, hold on, haven't you learned the lesson from Iraq? Haven't you learned your lesson from Libya? 
that it's a bad idea to topple a dictator without a transition prepared, without something to fill that power vacuum, especially in such an extreme war-torn country, so that your policy, United States, of Assad must go first, and we won't discuss anything else, Russia, um, is foolish. And you don't want that any more than we do. We're afraid of that because we're very close to Syria, because extremists from Chechnya, from other parts of the Caucasus, could come back and strike at Russia very nearby. Uh, But you shouldn't want that either, United States. So please join us in figuring out a way to manage a transition. We're not wedded to Assad forever. But we can't just topple another dictator, enforce another regime change, and leave this chaos. Well, we didn't listen two years ago. Um, Meanwhile, of course, Libya turned into the nightmare it's become. Um, Growing worse, a strong ISIS presence now. And only very recently has the United States policy shifted to consider and start looking seriously, finally, at cooperating with Russia and others, great powers, European powers, and Muslim states in the region, to at least try to figure a transition mechanism so that, as everyone recognizes, he must eventually, and in the relatively near future, go. Assad must go. He is a huge part of the problem. But just toppling him and hoping that some kind of democracy and stability will emerge is foolish. So I know this is a long-winded answer. I just wanted to give that little bit of background, but it's to say, yes, um, we are starting to take baby steps towards what someone like Sanders has been very sensibly advocating and, as a new president, hopefully would pursue a partnership with Russia, whatever our disagreements in other parts of the world, and we can talk about Ukraine and NATO yes, also. Right, yes. But on this issue, we've got to cooperate, and the Russians have been trying to cooperate. And people forget that in removing Saddam, excuse me, Assad's chemical weapons, not to mention the Iran nuclear agreement, Russia has been very helpful to us and to the West and the Middle East. So it's just baffling in Moscow why we have refused to cooperate on a managed transition hmm. in Syria and have only increased our own headaches. And and for those who may not be familiar, uh, our guest is uh, Robert English, who knows a bit about uh, Russia and the former USSR, specializes in that and, and has also worked for the Defense Department. And so much to follow up on there. It's, it's sort of hard to know where to begin. Uh, let, let's talk about Ukraine. And, and in your article uh, called uh, that, uh, uh, that Bernie Sanders is the foreign policy realist of 2016, you do talk about uh, George Kennan, one of my favorite people, I have to say, one of the author for many different things, actually. He's, he's had an interesting uh, uh, life for sure. Uh, he, he's the author of uh, The Containment Strategy. And... He, he was concerned that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, he warned about the dangers of a more aggressive expansionist NATO, which is right there. And that did come about. NATO has been more aggressive and expansionist, at least in Russian eyes. They, they are very worried about NATO expansion right at its doorstep in Ukraine. Looking at at the title of your article, was Bernie Sanders any more sober and clear-eyed than Hillary Clinton when they were both in the Senate in the 1990s about NATO? I'm, I'm guessing maybe they, they weren't. 
But w- what about this situation that that lends itself to something other than uh, you know belligerence on the part of the U.S. and a continuation of the uh, you know the Cold War ideology that we had uh, we've had for what seventy years or so? Yeah, let's talk about the expansion of NATO. And by the way, yes. that was a lot too. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Need a lot to address, uh, just as I've been doing with long answers for you. So there. <laughs> um, in, let's think about how a realist um, looks at NATO expansion from the 1990s into the 2000s, which you correctly point out, realists like Kennan warned would only provoke Russia and cause a kind of balancing belligerent response to what they saw as a, a new threat. And, you know, that's come to pass. Yeah. Kennan was right. Um, a realist would look at that whole process and note a couple of things. The first is what we've just said. Um, if you threaten others, they will balance and push back. And yeah. that's what we did. And by the way, there was a commitment at the end of the Cold War, at the time of German reunification, not to expand NATO eastward. Hmm. And the um, de- defenders of that spent all kinds of energy and legalistic arguments to try to show there wasn't. There was, okay, so that matters right off the bat because Russians felt betrayed, that a promise was broken. Um, But beyond that trust issue, which is important, then there is the concrete issue of this balancing reaction. And so many supporters of NATO um, at the time, acting absolutely unrealistically, said, no, we're not threatening Russia. Um, We're just... um, yeah. Sending security to Central Europe, mm-hmm. we think it'll make them feel more secure. We think it'll help them in their transition to democracy. Um, Russia, it's not a threat. And and since then, as Russia began protesting, protesting vehemently, going back to Boris Yeltsin in the 90s, and then finally pushing back in the 2000s, such as in Georgia and now Ukraine, um, defenders of the expansion say, this is all Putin. This is his personal ambition. He's a cold warrior. We never threatened them. Okay, right off the bat, a realist says, hold on. Yeah. You're breaking a cardinal tenet of realism if you think that somehow other people's military forces are threats, that they have to be looked at if they could be a threat, that we have to be prepared. But we are benevolent, hmm. and we can expand our military alliance system and deploy new weapons and, and so on. And the other guys shouldn't see it as a threat. And if they do, it's their fault. Now, this is just ridiculous. This is, uh, it, it's, um, it's unrealistic. <laughs> all the lessons of history. Any military planner, um, and I've been, as you correctly note, inside the Pentagon and studying this for my whole life, right? Military planners, realistic, clear eyed, sober mm-hmm. uh, guardians of their national interests, uh, will tell you what sort of a first principle is. Um, we look at capabilities, not intentions. We have to look at the forces you're deploying, and are they capable of threatening us, rather than trusting in your stated intentions that they won't threaten us. You might be a nice guy, but a bad leader tomorrow will inherit that military might, and his intentions or her intentions might change. So please, don't tell us that our weapons are bad and yours are good, that ours are threatening but yours are benign. And to this day, nonetheless, defenders of NATO expansion um, stubbornly refuse, sort of idiotically refuse, to acknowledge that. And so all realists, contemporary 
foreign policy analysis, international relations scholars, um, look at that and, and, and the huge gulf between all the lessons of history, all the reality mm-hmm. of power, and these protestations on the part of whether they're neoconservatives or liberal interventionists, whether it's the Bush administration, the Clinton administration before, mm-hmm. or the Obama administration now, um, and uh, see the, the stubborn refusal to look at others as they see us and to recognize that we threaten as well. It's, it's a mystery. And as mm-hmm. we've seen, one of the cardinal tenets of realism is look at the world as it really is and see yourselves as others see you. You can't impose your vision or your desired reality on actual events, and you can't force others um, to go along and see you as you want to be seen. Uh, and yet we do that again and again. Oh, it is amazing. And, and to be fair, when Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton were both in the United States Senate in the 1990s, I believe you mentioned that they, they, neither of them really saw that concern about NATO expansion. Is that correct? I, I, I could be wrong. Um, certainly Hillary Clinton... Bill Clinton, the Clinton administration, right? They set this in motion, and the first expansion of NATO occurs in 1999 while Clinton is president. Um, but I correct me if I'm wrong; someone can look this up. Um, I believe Bernie Sanders um, did not vote for NATO expansion, uh-huh. or let's put it this way: I'm not sure of his ultimate vote or abstention. Uh-huh. Right? He was a member of the House at that time, not the Senate, so maybe he didn't take part in Senate ratification. But he certainly spoke out, cautioning against these new military commitments. And I'm not honestly sure if his opposition was exactly the same as, let's say, George Kennan or the realist, that this would provoke Russia. A lot of other people were concerned simply that we were taking on huge new responsibilities and huge new expenses. You could be against NATO expansion just on the grounds that this is going to be an enormous boondoggle for the arms industry and a huge Hmm. expenditure it's not necessary. Remember, we were supposed to have a peace dividend. I've Cold heard of war it. Ended. I, I vaguely well, remember many that. Many progressives uh, uh, criticize it simply on domestic economic grounds. Mm, I know. It is uh, rather interesting and, and surprising. By uh, the way, if yes. I could um, interrupt your next question. Please, yes. Um, any sensible foreign policy analyst, international relations scholar, needs to stop once in a while and ask what might have been, not only what was, but to think seriously about yes. how things could have developed differently. And I, I mean here, when we're talking about NATO expansion, not only would we now be dealing with a more cooperative Russia and have a better relation of partnership with Moscow, but let's look at Eastern Europe as well. It has cost the Czech Republic, Hungary, Romania, as a whole, this new NATO region, in the middle of Europe, right up to Russia's borders, several hundred billion dollars to join NATO. Hmm. Right? They had to throw away their old weapons. Sadly, a lot of those old weapons wound up in new conflicts. Mm-hmm. And buy new Western-produced aircraft, artillery, armored vehicles, um, sidearms, and all the rest. Right, they had to invest a lot. Wow. Also, in upgrading airfields, communications, command and control, interoperability, so that they could actually be members of NATO. That was expensive. Some people made a lot of money off that and continue to. My question, when I say we have to think about what might have been, yeah. my question is, how much better off would Central Europe be right now if they instead mm. had spent that money on their own domestic needs? 
Mm. Would we see such anger against immigrants and refugees? Would we see such a strong nationalist or hardline turn in so many countries if so many people weren't living so poorly, if so many people wow. had lost social benefits or employment um, or other, in other ways have suffered materially because their governments, in order to join NATO, spent so much on the military instead of their population. Wow, that is something I certainly would not have been aware of. Very interesting. My goodness. That was their peace dividend, and that's sure. where it went. Now, not entirely, right? but I, I myself tried to do some rough calculations. And, of course, it depends on what you count, what you include. Right. Um, a, a new mili- a, a new, joining NATO might bring you some local benefits if you have an American deployment, right? There's mm-hmm. a lot of local spending, military bases, right? It generates cash for the local economy. For pizza but and beer. draining more from the country as a whole um, because you're not spending on domestic needs. In any case, the best people, myself included, and other analysts can come up with is on the order of, you know, three, four hundred billion dollars that these mm. poor, struggling East European countries have spent on their military that they wouldn't have otherwise. What could they have done with three or four hundred billion dollars? I think yeah. quite a lot. I would say, and of course it makes me think of my my own growing up here in the innocent 1950s when it was accepted as realism that the Soviet Union you know, was the bad guy. They did want to bury us and, uh, and the entire free world. And Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy uh, understood we needed to defend small democracies against this uh, global monolithic, you know, godless communism. Uh, but in, in retrospect, we, the United States, spent an incredible amount of money in this Cold War. And I wonder, you know, was it realistic from our optic right now to be in this situation? My guess is you're going to say no. But the second question is, could it have been seen as unrealistic at the time? I mean, we worked with the old Soviet Union to defeat the Nazis in the Second World War, and then all of a sudden, man, it became profitable for the weapons industry. Could it have been seen differently at the time? I suspect it was by a few people, perhaps people like uh, uh, Vice President uh, for a short time, Henry Wallace, and, and maybe some others. How? I guess my question is, how much money did we waste and could it could, could i you know i just have this feeling that it wasn't really necessary that if we had invested those probably trillions of dollars we might have ended up with more security today long question there there's your uh, takeoff point you know um it's a great question long or not um it's exactly in the spirit that i suggested thinking broadly about what might have been not just in a small way right. but in large historic terms and you don't need me to answer, because George Kennan himself answered. Um, the author of the containment strategy for the Cold War, George Kennan, lamented for many years that his strategy became too militarized, that he was talking about pushing back against Soviet communist efforts right, to expand mm-hmm. or be aggressive mm-hmm. in certain key points where they threatened U.S. national interests. But beyond that, not trying to roll back communism, 
not creating a bloated military-industrial complex far beyond anything we needed for deterrence, right. and thereby creating this self-perpetuating cycle of both sides' military-industrial complexes and both sides' ideological complexes, right? Heightening aggression, a spiral of arms spending. Yeah. In other words, Kennan thought we went way too far. He was for a more limited kind of containment strategy. Hmm. And um, he actually warned in, in some famous remarks, and you can find it in his memoirs, that we, we were in danger. We, the West, and this new NATO alliance that was created in 1949, that we were in danger of over-militarizing, of, of exaggerating the Soviet threat, overreacting to it, and then causing an overreaction on their part. Mm-hmm. Kennan himself answered your question, and he said, you're right. Um, Mr. Cohen, you're exactly hmm. right. I didn't mean containment to be so aggressive or all-encompassing and to simply take over our domestic economy and become the obsession it was. And, and it did become an obsession oh, yeah. in the sense that, really, after Stalin's death, right, the early Cold War, the really high tensions of the Berlin crisis and so forth, um, and then after peace treaties were signed, the Austrian treaty, troops came out of Central Europe, problems in the Middle East, the Korean War was quickly ended after Stalin's death, that we could have found, with the new Soviet leaders, remember Nikita Khrushchev, Mm -hmm. um, better accord, begun arms control, and reduced military spending much earlier, um, except that on our side, uh, we didn't understand that Stalin was indeed dead, and we were dealing with new leaders who wanted to focus on the domestic economy. This isn't to say that, that Khrushchev and later Brezhnev were nice guys or were, you know, something like Gorbachev would become later mm-hmm. and institute a kind of a full-scale retreat and, scale and, and ratcheting down of the Cold War. It would, it would be much more complicated than that. But we tended in the mid-50s and beyond, when Stalin had passed, to see subsequent Soviet leaders as just like Stalin and missed opportunities to institute, to launch arms control and reductions much earlier, much earlier. And um, Kennan, again, himself said exactly that. And if you bear with me for one more moment, Kennan very ironically pointed out the following. Because remember, Kennan originally was a deep skeptic of the Soviet Union. He looked at the situation in 47, 48, and he said, Hey, America, you don't understand what a bad guy Stalin is. You think it's still FDR and Uncle Joe, cooperation in World War II, and that we can continue that way. And he said, no, Stalin is serious. He wants to cement power in Central Europe. Um, the World War II alliance is breaking down. And he saw Washington and the legacy of FDR as a little slow to react to just how nasty Stalin was. Then, when Stalin died, um, Kennan again lamented, or he said a quote roughly, hey, America, now Stalin is gone, but you're continuing the anti-Stalin policy, which you finally instituted when I warned you. Um, but he's gone now, and we need a new policy because new Soviet leaders are trying to ratchet down confrontation, are trying to turn to domestic needs. And you don't seem cognizant of the fact that we have a new opportunity. Hmm. So his critique was our policy was almost 10 years too late. We were a little soft on Stalin at the outset, thinking that he was a nice guy. Right. Um, and by the time we got tough, or at least 
started containing, Stalin was gone, and it was time mm. to look at things and see about uh, possibilities of uh, rapprochement. Mm. But we continued to act as if we were facing Stalin for the next uh, 15, 20 years. Well, it sure was profitable for the defense industry, and I wonder... Yes, and that's, that was what you asked about at the outset, and that was what I... Well, and... It sure cost a lot, and much of it was unnecessary. And I wonder, bringing it back from, from Stalin to Sanders, uh, <laughs> could, you know, Sanders talks a lot about building the domestic, domestic economy. One of the things, I mean, I very much liked FDR. He had his faults, too. But building the American economy, uh, I think, demonstrably was foreign policy realism and made us more secure. And it's, am I, I don't know, I mean, you know more about this stuff than I do, but it, it seems to me that what Bernie Sanders is talking about is rebuilding America. I mean, there's a lot of people out of work now, and there's a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done. And he talks about not just having strength militarily, but being strong, I mean, being, uh, being smart as well as strong. So I wonder if we could bring it back to that uh, a little bit and how, you know, Bernie Sanders' approach now uh, might enable us to do things that, that we've missed in the past and, and be more, perhaps, realistic. Well, yes, I, I briefly alluded to this at the outset of our conversation. Um, the dimension of realism that maybe gets neglected more than any other when we very casually and, and recklessly talk about Hillary Clinton is realistic because she's tough, and Bernie Sanders is too idealistic or right. too utopian. Right. Um, what gets missed in that is, yeah, what do realists say? Realists also say that your ability to project power, whether it's military or whether it's by leadership, by example, by persuasion, that ability um, will erode and erode rapidly if you don't have a healthy economy at home, if you don't have a strong society, and you aren't living up to your own ideals. Right? Uh, we come back to that again and again, whether it's Morgenthau or Kennan or Martin Luther King, that uh, we have to stop being hypocritical. We have to live up to our own ideals, not just for the sake, although it's overwhelmingly important, of justice and fairness and opportunity at home, but also for the sake of our image and our ability to lead abroad. Yeah. And so Sanders, I think, is the only candidate making this key realist point that our domestic problems, this gross income inequality, um, and so many affiliated problems uh, that he mentioned, yeah. um, women's rights, um, issues of racism, you know, institutionalized violence, on and on, that, that we are very close to uh, a perilous of going off a cliff or moving into territory where we are seriously torn and divided domestically. Yeah. And we'll see a sudden drop in our foreign prestige, our ability to lead. Uh, we will be necessarily, you know, pulled back from the world because we'll find, I don't want to be too dramatic and say chaos at home or revolution, but serious domestic discord that'll make the 1960s right look yeah. wild by comparison, um, and so many elites are are just not paying attention. And, and and I'm not the first to notice this, but there is something strange as it sounds common in the appeal of both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders to this frustrated 
middle class that's shrinking, it's disappearing. Yes. Um, this uh, sort of polarized society of haves and have-nots, and the frustrations of so many that they've been left out of the prosperity and the income and wealth of the last 10, 15, or more years. And uh, only Bernie Sanders, not just from a justice perspective, which should be enough, mm -hmm. also from a foreign policy influence perspective, is raising a red flag and saying, we are in danger of losing something precious. Um, yeah, and, and, and you mentioned... Uh, how, uh, and, and again, growing up in the 50s, I, I was under the impression we had the legitimate moral authority back then. It doesn't, we seem to have uh, squandered that away. But again, uh, going back to uh, George Kennan, you, you point out that he wrote that America must live up to its own ideals and show the world, quote, a country which knows what it wants, which is coping successfully with the problem of its internal life, and which has a spiritual vitality, end quote. To many, it could sound like, oh, come on, this is mushy idealism here. You know, uh, How important is this really in terms of global power and peace and actual national security? How mushy is that? I don't think it's mushy at all. The problem in understanding it is that it's not immediate and obvious the way uh, the barrel of a gun is. Yeah, so let me give you an example, and I wouldn't even pretend, because I'm not a Mideast expert, to speak about public opinion in the Middle East. But I think it's plain to anyone that this decade, decade and a half of chaos, of, of failed interventions, of foolish militarism in the Middle East has destroyed our image, the image that Obama tried to repair in his first administration. Remember his famous speech in Cairo, um, but that has been overwhelmed by what we've done in Libya and Syria and elsewhere. And the killing, there are weapons in Saudi hands, continue to uh, perpetrate in the Gulf. Right? Our image, therefore our ability to lead and persuade among the populations of the Middle East, is in tatters. But let me turn to a region I know better, back to Russia and Central Europe. When... The Cold War was nearing an end. When we had Mikhail Gorbachev in power in the Soviet Union, reforming the country and reaching arms agreements and demilitarizing international relations, um, I can tell you this in great detail. Our soft power, our image, our ability to lead, meaning the United States, was extremely important. Right? Gorbachev and the key liberal advisors around him mm -hmm. And liberal public opinion in general in the Soviet Union was so pro-Western, was so idealistic, was so admiring of the U.S. that it, it gave us enormous credibility and influence. And on things you wouldn't even consider, for example, in my own research, um, I was struck by how many of these foreign policy liberals and Westernizers, we could call them, around Gorbachev, the progressive side of Pedestroika, had grown up in one case, admiring the United States because it tackled its environmental problems in the 70s. Oh, interesting. And their country was a stinking industrial waste heap because the Communist Party ignored it. Another was inspired, um, for example, by the way we tackled racism and the civil rights movement. And on and on, they looked at what America was doing domestically with plenty of problems, but a very open attempt to live up to those ideals 
and progress from the society we'd been in the 20s or the 40s. And that formed a big part of their opinion about admiring and following the United States model. And I could go on and on. I'll give you one more example. Please. Torture. Hmm. In the United States, because the old Soviet Union used a form of torture, not just direct torture in its political prison camps, but they abused psychiatry and used it as sort of Mm -hmm. a weapon of interrogation and torture. Mm -hmm. And many in the West called this to light, criticized it, um, and again set a moral example. So now, fast forward 25 Mm -hmm. years, who's torturing? What does it do to our ability to criticize others for human rights violations when we descended to that level Mm -hmm. ourselves? And again, whether it's environment, racism, women's rights, what have you, the things that we are not coping successfully with in our internal life, as Kenan said, um, are on display to the whole world. And I guess the very simple way to put it is if you're a hypocrite, people stop believing you (laughs) and stop following you. Yeah, that tends to be the case. People aren't that dumb. You're listening to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is Robert English, Deputy Director of the School of International Relations at the University of Southern California, and he certainly specializes in Russia and former USSR and formerly worked inside the Pentagon at the Defense Department. Well, one of the things that some people, when they criticize Bernie Sanders on unrealistic foreign policy, have pointed to the fact that he has talked about global warming as a top foreign policy issue. Many have called that naive. But what about warnings of various Pentagon, CIA, and other defense analyses of how global warming has fueled and will continue to fuel instability. Is global warming indeed a realistic foreign policy focus at this point that Senator Sanders has? I think it is. Thank you for raising that point. And um, I guess I could put it this way, um, and it has to do with our horizons. Who's the better realist? If we can all agree that a realist starts with concern over threats to our national interests. Who is the better realist then? The one who only looks at the threats that are right around the corner or that we're dealing with immediately? Or the one who says, we also have to look a little further down the road and prepare for new threats and maybe we can alleviate them before they become overwhelming threats? Of course the person who looks a little further down the road is the more realistic. And that's what Bernie Sanders is doing when he points to climate change, global warming, as not just an environmental issue or even an economic issue, but a national security issue. And he's not doing it alone. I mean, this is almost mind-boggling that anyone would criticize him for this because he properly is drawing on the reports, the warnings, the white papers, the studies of the CIA, of the U.S. Department of Defense, of the Center for Naval Analysis, of the Committee on foreign relations, just to take four American examples. Hmm. You don't have to look at various United Nations and other studies. But all agree that whether it's drought and resource scarcity, which is causing huge population movements, destabilizing already weak states, and increasing the chances of strife and civil war and extremism, or rising seas, which intrude not only on 
low-lying populations in, let's say, Bangladesh, for example, where so much of the population is living in precarious situations right at sea level and is not only threatened by rising seas, but also by all the storms, the cyclones, the increased um, you know, um, weather uh, instability. Sure. But our own military bases, we have to be concerned, even if we are narrowly self-interested, which we ought not be, we have to be concerned that a lot of what we've invested in is going to be flooded. So for whatever motivation, of course, climate change has to be taken much more seriously as a national security issue. If you're putting out one failed state or extremist movement fire here, but three more are erupting over there and you're ignoring the reasons they're erupting, is that realistic? No, no, it's it's true. We got to. I would like us to be realistic, and and you have, as an academic, some knowledge of of history and the classics, and there is that old classic classic concept of hubris. You mentioned in your article that Thucydides talked about how hubris affected the great, powerful state of Athens, but with all its warnings, the concept of hubris has around been around for a really long time. Yet we remain a very powerful country. Athens has not crumbled here yet. Might it simply not apply anymore? It applies. It's just that we are so large and powerful. And we, of course, have enjoyed throughout our history the benefit of being safe thanks to these two great oceans. Yes, that's a big factor. Yes. That, that, that the United States, for that combination of reasons, um, has simply enjoyed a much greater margin of security and a much greater margin, let's say, of error. Um, our mistakes don't immediately come back to haunt us the way they haunt people closer by. Look no yeah. further than this massive refugee crisis that's destabilizing Western Europe yeah. that is in large measure of our creation, Absolutely. American creation, Absolutely. yet it doesn't it doesn't impact us directly. So right. geography has given us, um, you know, this margin whereby our mistakes, mm-hmm. including those generated, as you say, by hubris, by these illusions and these delusions or arrogance mm-hmm. of being different and above the rest of the world, we haven't always immediately paid the price. But it will be paid. It simply takes longer. Mm-hmm. I found it interesting that among the Republicans running for president, well, actually, somebody told me today that he was concerned about Trump, but at least he'd put America first. There was Rand Paul for a time there, and you say Rand Paul was, quote, arguably the only foreign policy realist in the Republican field. I wonder, why has he been attacked so much for it from other Republicans, although now I suppose he's sort of irrelevant? Well, his realism was immediately... um branded as isolationist. Oh, right. And, um, you know, we could speak all day about the abuse of that term, but certainly in the Republican Party, um, it has become a bad word um, of only negative connotations. If isolationism means overwhelmingly that you are wary of entanglements, problems abroad, Mm -hmm. and grand projects to transform entire regions, whether it's Vietnam, Southeast Asia, Central Europe, or the Middle East. Um, if, if that's what isolationism is, well, then isolationism is actually realism. And, and we could quibble all day over 
you know, details of, of RAND Pauls and other so-called right. isolationist foreign policies, but obviously they overlap substantially yeah. with the concerns and the principles of realism, chief among them, which is to be modest, to be restrained, sure. what a concept. to not let your own hubris yeah. and infatuation with yourself or sense of superiority cloud your vision about what is right and what is possible. And this, sure, Rand Paul was and remains uh, a realist on foreign policy. Yeah, I we like can I like him for that. I just wanted to, we only got a couple minutes left. Bill Gates, I mean Robert Gates rather, former uh, Defense Secretary, CIA Director Robert Gates, cannot be accused of being, you know, a softy. He is not naively idealistic or unrealistic in terms of foreign policy and defense policy. You write that Sanders is by Gates' own criteria probably the only foreign policy realist left in the presidential race. Robert Gates... Talk about that a little bit, please. Well, Robert Gates has been a foreign policy and intelligence and defense insider for his entire career. Right. Uh, you probably know that he came up through the intelligence world and um, actually was a specialist on the USSR. And he has various career incarnations since served as both director of the CIA as well as the Secretary of Defense. So he's seen and done it all. Yeah. Um, he had to learn the hard way, um, and I don't mean to be too hard on Robert Gates, but he did, in 2002 and 2003, support the Iraq War. And I don't know that he's ever bluntly confronted that mistake, but he certainly, in what he has done and said since, embraced realism. And um, as I quote in my piece, um, he said, he, from the vantage point of a career of experience and decades of American foreign policy and so many mistakes, he looks out and says, look how militarized we've become. Look how things are backfiring yeah. because of our ignorance or arrogance. Mm -hmm. And look how the rest of the world sees us. And it's remarkable for a longtime Republican insider and defense establishment pillar yeah. to then say, the rest of the world sees us throwing drones here, invading there, dropping bombs in another place, and it's undermining everything. It's undermining our own interests in the region. It's undermining our image in the eyes of the rest of the world, not just our adversaries, but also our allies, and we have to stop. How remarkable that, is. that Gates now says this, but how lamentable that it's taken him an entire career to reach some of these conclusions. And, yeah. and that's, uh, we, we all, in the American foreign policy establishment, with a few rare exceptions, the vast majority in Washington, in the commentariat, the Washington hmm. consensus, seem to have to go through mistake and catastrophe one after the other hmm. before, we achieve some, before we achieve some wisdom. Oh, it does seem and, the um, case. Bernie Sanders seems to have had that wisdom all along. It does, it does uh, seem quite evident with that. Well, thank you so much. Robert English, uh, his piece in The Nation is Bernie Sanders, the foreign policy realist of 2016. Thanks so much for being with us. And we, the people, do have some power over this. We really do. Thank you so much. You are very welcome. Me!
50,000 a month. 